Hi, Luna. Thanks for being with us. The first question I want to ask you is sort of a general question. Well, you're a senior lecturer in medical humanities and philosophy at the University of Exeter, and uh, with, uh, you're particularly interested in medical humanities and what that is. And you're really interested in the question of shame, which we're going to talk about today. Um, but first, you've just, or you're rather about to embark on a, a research grant with the Wellcome Trust. So maybe you could tell us a little about that to get the uh, the ball rolling. That's right. So I've been working on a research project called Shame in Medicine um, since about 2014 um, and collaborating with an, a clinician called Barry Lyons, who's at Trinity College Dublin. He's an anaesthetist and also a, a medical educator. So he works in the medical school. And then we also collaborate with a sociologist called Matthew Gibson in Birmingham. And the three of us are um, starting a five year project next year which it kind of is a continuation of this ongoing research project. Five years of funding has just been infused into the project to investigate shame and related negative self-conscious emotions um, in medicine, so in various aspects of healthcare and medicine. So thinking about how patients experience shame related to their illnesses and how that might interfere with um, with treatment and diagnosis and also contribute to the burden of illness. Also thinking about how clinicians might experience shame as a result of things like medical failure or bullying or burnout. Um, there's a lot more public shaming of doctors, um, you might be mm. aware, on the internet. Um, and the consequences this has in terms of their professional life. And then also thinking about how medical students um, experience shame. So there's a bit of literature looking at how shame and humiliation are used in teaching practices for medical students, especially in clinical training. Um, and whether that is effective or not effective is, is sort of open to question. Um, and, and then also the way that institutions, medical institutions might use shame or shaming thinking about like public health campaigns that you shame or discuss to kind of try and motivate people to change their lifestyle choices and whether that's effective or not. So there's, there's a whole um, space of different ways that shame kind of appears in healthcare and medical contexts. And we're really interested in investigating them largely because there's, although everyone's really aware that shame, you know, is a significant part of illness or can be, um, there's almost no academic research um, investigating shame and other related emotions in medicine. So it's, it's quite curious. So you think there's there's basically a large deficit uh, for this concept that's very, very familiar to people. I mean, anyone yeah. who anyone who's had to disrobe at a doctor's yeah. will know what you're talking about. Oh, but there's, yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, but you said there's like a sort of a theoretical deficit. I mean, is it, w yeah. when you like think about physicians and medical practitioners, is there a discourse in the, those professions broadly or... Uh, I mean, I think one of the things you said in your articles, you say shame in medical practice often remains unspoken, hidden and repressed. So I guess yeah. not. <laughs> it's often called, it's interesting, and quite a few medics have called it the elephant in the room. So everyone knows it's there, but nobody's talking about it. And I think that has to do with something to do with the nature of shame in general, in that it's shame itself is shameful or taboo. So in our culture, it's 
um, something that we avoid talking about. We skirt around. It's shameful to even mention past instances of shame. I'd say most people have some shameful episode that they've never told anyone and may never tell anyone until the day they die. So shame is something that that we avoid speaking about in general. And then I think for clinicians, um, I mean, anecdotally, many clinicians will talk about how, and, and obviously there's evidence about this as well, actually, that um, they're supposed to be infallible. So they're supposed to not make mistakes. They're supposed to always get it right. And so the possibility of something like shame being a part of their experience is almost completely unacceptable. Um, and so that's part of the reason that that we almost get no accounts of clinician shame. Um, and then they might come up for things that are very severe, like being struck off the record or, or medical failure where you make a mistake and someone is harmed or maybe dies. That's very important. And what I like about that is that it's it's not, normally we think of it on the side of the patient, but you seem to be, you're interested in looking into what the uh, medical practitioner's experience of shame is, what their yeah, how, their, what their lived experience of shame actually might be and how that mutates, I guess, over time and in different contexts. Yeah. And it's something that's really interesting because shame is also re- is always relational. So it's always about an encounter with another, whether they're imagined or real or right in front of you or, or, or just something that you're thinking about or someone that you're thinking about. Um, and, and shame dynamics are such that if someone feels shame often or sometimes a way of coping with that is to push shame back onto someone else. So to shame another. So it, it is conceivable that in a clinical encounter between a, a doctor and a patient, if the doctor starts to feel shame or insecure or or lack lacking like a certain amount of knowledge that they think they need they might push that back onto the patient and and the and then shame the patient for some sort of lifestyle choice or some you know some sort of behavior or or presentation and and so what we're really interested in is thinking not just about how individuals experience shame in medical contexts but how shame circulates so the dynamics that are um, causing shame to manifest in certain ways and in certain locations. And all of that, of course, is relational. And then it's also inframed by institutions and the values the institutions have, the kind of norms and mores of the institutions. Um, The medical profession is a very particular sort of profession. um, And and, and it occurs in very particular sorts of institutions. So that's um, why we're kind of interested in looking at the clinical side as well or the clinician side as well. Okay, so maybe we can step back a bit and sort of mm-hmm. try and unpick what shame means a bit more generally. Yeah. Um, well, first, can I ask why? What drew you to this? Because I mean, you've you've been researching this for a period now. I mean, yeah. Um, you've you're, you're now starting this five year project, and you've have been publishing articles on this for the, the I guess the last five, uh, six, seven years. I guess. Yeah. Um, what what drew you to this in the first place, Luna? Well, um, I started researching shame really with my master's thesis, and I was really interested in um, phenomenological accounts of embodiment, kind of in general, and then also quite interested in social constructionist accounts, so sort of Foucault's account of disciplined bodies, um, docile bodies. And I guess those two accounts form... Um, kind of opposite ends of a spectrum. So the phenomenological account gives you an account of embodiment that is characterized by the ICANN, to use Husserl's term, um, which is that individuals have agency in their experience and they relate to the world through this kind of capacity for engagement and, and movement and motility and and so on. Um, and and on, in, the con- in contrast to that is the kind of Foucauldian account of what he calls the disciplined body, where there's absolutely almost no agency and what the body 
um, is characterized by is being written um, by social forces. So the body is is kind of molded and formed by the forces within with which it's enmeshed, usually in institutions. And he uses examples of like being in the prison or the school or, you know, these kind of institutions to talk about how the body is disciplined and shaped. And to me, they seemed like completely contrasting, but also completely both of them were right. And so I really wanted to understand how you could reconcile those two accounts and how hold them in hold both of those. Like we, we do have experiences of agency and this, you know, this kind of emerging sort of movement towards the world, like the phenomenologists describe, but we also have experiences of being written by social forces. And what I found through reading, um, some of the sociologists of everyday life, like Goffman and Elias, um, I got really interested in their work because they talk about shame and embarrassment and other negative self-conscious emotions as really the bridge between those two accounts. Well, they wouldn't formulate it in that way, but that's how I started to take their their readings of shame. So shame is something that carries the social and the political because it's always a standard, you're always shamed according to a standard that's outside of yourself. Um, but is also deeply impersonal and embodied and and changes the way that you you comport your body um, or has the potential to to modify how you comport your body. So I saw shame as like the link between phenomenology and social constructionist constructionism. Is it the case that you're kind of trying to have a middle path between and tell me if I'm being overly simplistic here between I guess a psychological inward looking account of shame and um as well a social account of shame or an interpersonal uh, account of shame? Oh, I don't know if I put it that way. Yeah, but I suppose it is to understand how individual experiences of shame, which are individ are experienced as like deeply personal and, and kind of isolated and like they're your own experience in a psychological sense, um, actually are always all also relational to others and also to society and to broader structures like institutions and politics and so on, political norms. Um, so each personal experience of shame is embedded in this kind of larger constellation of forces, unnecessarily so. And that's why I think it's a really useful way to understand how the political is embodied, like how the you know things that are circulating politically can become then embodied in individuals. It's through shame. And and so it's kind of like trying to give a phenomenological account of how the body is shaped by social forces. So does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah, because if shame is shame has to be something social, I guess, or as you say, relational at least, yeah. I guess, because it's always indexed in some way, whether it's something you're feeling yourself, it's about the a other. social context or a yeah. set of values or status even you know yeah absolutely yeah and yeah. also it's always about it's it's phenomenology or how we experience this is is about visibility so the the kind of the the it's always about someone's someone is looking at you or you perceive that others can see something about you and it's not really that someone is actually looking at you although it often can be that way um but it's that's the kind of um the structure of shame is that we perceive that others can see something about ourselves that is flawed or wrong or bad and and this kind of visibility means that the other whether they're real or imagined or just a generalized other, um, is always part of the structure of shame. So we need to feel shame before someone or something or um, in, in front of others. Um, Yet it yeah. is quite 
taboo. I mean, in some way, we don't like to talk about it about ourselves, about others. I've, um, I mean, I took this quote uh, from your article. It's not you, but it's you quoting Rousseau. Uh-huh. And, uh, yeah, I think that's it's a particularly striking quote. It's from uh, Rousseau, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Confessions, and he says, yeah. um, "I did. I got some good quotes from your article." <laughs> yeah, I got one later on to talk coming from Goffman as well. But the first one is, "I did not fear punishment, but I dreaded shame. I dreaded it more than death." More than yeah. the crime, more than all the world, I would have buried hid myself in the centre of the earth, earth. Invincible shame bore down every other sentiment. Now, that's pretty strong from Rousseau. Yeah. I mean, even for, by Rousseau's like sort of uh, <laughs> often bombastic <laughs> standards. Yeah. Yeah. Shame is a fate worse than death is what he's saying. You know, and we see we, we, we see it on the language, you know, that uh, people say that like I, the ground, I, would wa- I, I wanted the ground to swallow me whole. Yeah. And it's not, it, it's, I mean, it is kind of extreme, but it's also pretty accurate because shame often leads, not often, can sometimes lead to suicide. And shame, mm. people talk, I mean, the word mortification is kind of a very intense shame, but obviously comes from the word for death. And, um, and so there is a correlation between shame and death, because really what shame is, is a fear of social death. So whether it's physical death, what people are afraid of with shame experiences is severing social bonds um, and losing connections to others. And so, so shame is a sort of death. It can lead to a sort of death, a sort of social death. And, um, and, and everyone wants to avoid that at all costs. And that's why we avoid shame so fastidiously. And we even avoid talking about it because it signals this threat to our ourselves and signals this vulnerability we all have that others might reject us, you know, at any time we might be rejected by the people we want to be near and, and we need them, you know, and I mean, there, there are evolutionary accounts of shame, um, which are interesting and talk about how shame developed because of our need for physical survival. So we needed to be within, the, you know, the fold of the herd the human group um, in order to survive because um, as young infants we can't survive on our own so we need we develop this capacity to understand how others see us so we can make our behavior fit into what's needed so that the group keeps us in the fold um, and that's what that the, the argument in with evolutionary psychologists is that shame developed in that way in order for to signal to us when we've transgressed and that means that we might lose our social bonds and that means we might lose so you know we might our survival might be compromised um and and so now it's about social you know it's in most societies it's no longer about physical survival but it's about social survival and and like you were saying like about status and so on and that gets very tied up into shame as well okay so maybe try to that's a good place to start the evolutionary account so maybe try to uh unpick that a little bit um to say something is evolutionary means it's in some sense biological. Yeah. And then it's that implies that in some way a shame is an embodied thing, which you, you write about. Um, could can you say then, you know, in general terms, is shame an emotion in the same way that I don't know, sadness, joy, or fear could be? Yeah, it's uh, there's so many conflicting um accounts of emotions and and also how to characterize shame. So I think some theorists would say yes, and I think you can talk about shame as an emotion. Um, others would say that shame is is distinct because unlike sadness or anger, for example, shame is what's considered a self-conscious emotion. So it arises because you have an awareness of how the other views you um, and it has similar in structure to guilt or pride. So it's an emotion that only arises in relation to another or the viewpoint of another. It doesn't have to be an actual other person, but you need the the 
an external viewpoint on the self for shame to happen. Um, whereas that's not necessarily the case with anger or um, sadness or happiness and so on. Um, so it's it's got this self-conscious structure. Um, so right. So by that, oh, sorry again, Luna, but by yeah. that you mean that, you know, so while, you know, while you feel happy, you feel happy. While you feel sad, you feel sad. Uh, you feel mournful or whatever. But with shame, you have this added, uh, I don't know, <laughs> self-devaluing mechanism yeah. uh, that, that exists alongside the, the base feeling. Yeah. So you have the kind of feeling and then what the feeling is, is related it is completely linked into an awareness of the self in some way. So in shame, the awareness is bad. So you, the, the, the self has done something, the, the self is flawed or is fundamentally bad. In guilt, it's usually about um, something that you've done. So the classic distinction between shame and guilt is that shame is about who you are, whereas guilt is about something that you've done. Um, and then in pride, the feeling is good. So you you have a sense of yourself as having done something positive or um and so but but crucial to all of those self-conscious emotions is that the sense of self is is a part of the emotional response so so yeah i mean there, i mean because i'm a philosopher i'm not terribly interested in the biological kind of basis of shame i'm more interested in how it's experienced um and you know in some sense the biology is you know, the phenomenologist would just bracket that and say, put that to one side and say, well, it doesn't matter what the biological um, reality is. It's about how we actually experience shame. And, and that that's the thing that's really of interest. Um, so I'm not terribly concerned with whether shame is something that we're, is hardwired into our brain. But that's the sort of thing that in the, evolu uh, the evolutionary psychology accounts you you read about is this kind of notion that shame is hardwired into our brains, um, that we need the capacity, not, not that just that we need it, but we, we all have the capacity to experience shame, um, in some, some ways it might be diminished. So, so there's an argument that individuals who have experiences of autism or Asperger's or, um, or that spectrum, um, have perhaps a, a different capacity to experience shame and the, the ability to have the experience of the viewpoint of another back on the self might be different for certain um, uh, certain individuals with certain conditions. So the question I'm interested in then is like, you know, if just try to understand it, you know, kind of stepping out of the, you know, the biological or the deterministic account yeah. of uh, shame. I mean, in terms of how you would see someone experiencing it, like you say it's different to guilt. I mean, is it is it different to, is there a difference between shame and embarrassment, for example? Yeah. Um, so the, again, there's a, an, an enormous literature trying to differentiate shame from lots of different experiences like guilt or embarrassment. And usually what's said is that shame and embarrassment are part of a family of emotions. So shame might be like an umbrella term that would encompass things like humiliation, mortification, embarrassment. And that the difference we could say arguably between shame and embarrassment is that shame is a more intense experience. Embarrassment is a light, what they call a lighter emotion. Um, it happens we get over we get over embarrassment more quickly it's it's not usually as devastating as shame it might be linked to some part of the self but it's not um it doesn't make the entire self feel flawed it's usually about a mishap or a small transgression where shame is really like something in the self is bad you know the core self is damaged or sullied in some way so yeah embarrassment is seen more light light and 
Cleating. Fluffy. <laughs> Fluffy, yeah. Cleating. <laughs> I see. So shame is uh, existential, which uh, is, what I guess, what you're driving at. Does that mean then that it doesn't go away? It's perpetual? It's it's something that's, uh, or something that ebbs and flows in terms of the degree yeah. of intensity with which we experience it? I think so. I think the potential for shame is is always present, and that's what the the sociologists of everyday life, like Goffman and Elias, would talk about. That shame acts as this um, threshold in all interactions. So it's always present, and it's kind of guiding us and corralling us to do the normal thing or the right thing at all times. Um, so we always behave in socially acceptable ways. Because shame and embarrassment are the threshold that are preventing us from, you know, at any moment taking off all our clothes and running around hysterically. We don't do that most of the time because we have shame and embarrassment to keep us in line. And they argue, Goffman in particular, argues that this is the, the, the thing that is kind of in in everyday interaction. Um, that's These are the kind of invisible boundaries that, that keep us um, in harmony with others in social relations. So the potential is always there. Um, and then sometimes things happen and we transgress or some someone reminds us of something and then shame arises. And what's really interesting about shame is that like it does stay with you. So, you know, the things that we remember, probably the, the memories that burn the brightest are probably shame experiences right you think back oh I wish I hadn't done that and it's like 20 years later and you're still like oh I wish I had done it and you can feel it all again like you just have to think about it and it really bad hangover yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly so it it's not that it it's with you all the time but you you know those 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 experiences can be relived and can be just as painful and just as shameful you know many years later and yeah, I mean, I think thinking about Rousseau's quote, I mean, it's very extreme, but like you get a sort of sense of that, how visceral and how immediate it, it can be. Um, yeah. Can I, I'd like to read out at this point, I'd like to read out the yeah. Goffman quote, uh, oh, which yeah. you, which you worked love- on in your article. Um, I'll, I'll put a link to your articles on the uh, on the notes. Um, but uh, I thought this was quite striking also. So uh, Goffman says, Goffman's the uh, a sociologist, I guess. Yeah. Uh, which uh, kind of uh, sort of a specialism in sort of philosophy of everyday life. Uh, so he's, he says um, shame is sort of a form of blushing, fumbling, stuttering, an unusually low or high-pitched voice, sweating, flanching, blinking, tremor of the hands, hesitating, facilitating movement. There may be a lowering of the eyes, bowing of the head, putting the hands behind the back, nervous fingering of the clothing, or twisting of the fingers together, stammering. Uh, there are also symptoms of a subjective kind, constriction of the diaphragm, feeling of wobbliness, cautiousness of straight and unnatural gestures, and day sensation, dryness of mouth, and titsness of muscles. That sounds horrible, Luna. <laughs> I think he's enumerating some or many of the symptoms that may come with an experience. So so if they're all happening at once, you're in trouble, basically. (laughs) Totally. So uh, just in terms in terms of uh, that thing, I mean, I mean, it's it is really what you're. It's it's so interesting to me, right? Because what you're talking about is so fundamental. Like, um, because uh, sort of reveals something about myself here. The you're definitely triggering some of my sort of Catholic background here. We're talking about shame and guilt and uh, all yeah. this stuff. So I'm like, oh yeah, that feels like home. Um, but uh, the 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 I suppose I mean it is just on that side. It's uh it is it's effectively biblical, isn't it? It's like yeah. it's it's right at the beginning of Genesis. Uh, yeah. And in some reason, it's uh, I mean in Genesis. Uh, let me sort of remember. Yeah, so it's it's to do with kind of veiling and unveiling and uh, concealing yeah. and revealing, you know, so like Adam and Eve and they're naked and then they go, oh, 
look what I did. Yeah. I did something wrong. And uh, all of a yeah. sudden I'm ashamed and I need yeah. fi- fig leaves and all this type of thing. So is, is, is that something that you've uh, any thoughts on or you could speak yeah. to? No, it's and it's really super interesting that many of the human origin stories like Genesis, the moment of the kind of origin of humanity is a moment of shame. So in, in Genesis, it's like Adam and Eve suddenly realize they're naked and suddenly realize they need to be ashamed of the fact that they're naked. And um, and it's often linked to the um, the body, like the the vulnerability of, of, you know, the fact that we're actually merely animals. We're, we're not transcendent gods. We're actually just animals with bodies that are flawed and will die and will get sick one day. Um, so I, I find I find that really interesting that that especially in in Genesis that the shame is like the origin this moment of shame is the origin of humanity and um and I do Sartre talks about it in in being in nothingness he he brings in in his account of pure shame which is a sort of ontological account of shame how shame is kind of part of the inherent structure of of the human subject um he brings in the the origin story of Genesis to talk about what well, what we what we really fear is being rendered object um, and in his account is all about being objectified by the other and and he talks about how in Genesis when Adam and Eve realize that they're naked and their their bodies are exposed they become kind of objectified in a particular way um, and that's what we're all terrified of that we're, we're rendered object by the other and that means we lose some aspect of our you know our humanity or our agency or our subjectivity um, so it definitely comes into I mean, these origin stories definitely kind of revisit the philosophical accounts. Like Max Scheller talks about um, uh, shame as being inherently related to our bodily form. So it's about our, our vulnerability as, as you know, embodied beings. Um, and, and that's why I think kind of there is something useful to think about shame as, as an ontological structure that's related to our vulnerability um, as social beings. So we're vulnerable because we're afraid others are going to reject us and that we'll be kind of ostracized from our social group. Um, but we're also vulnerable because we're we're embodied and our bodies are... Yeah, you're right. Ab- so, yes, sorry, Luna. You write yeah. about this, don't you? You talk about... Um, you In one of your articles, you kind of try to work through and unpick what uh, Martha Nussbaum, uh, mm-hmm. the philosopher, and Jean-Paul Sartre talk about when they talk about uh, shame. So uh, what's interesting to me, and that is, uh, yeah, as you said, for Sartre, shame is kind of inescapable. It's, it's, yeah. it's, it's almost necessary for Sartre, isn't it? You know, it's, yeah, it's, absolutely. It's, it, it, it reveals something about us. It reveals our truth. It undermines our own status and reveals us what we are. Is that right? Is that what Sartre yeah. tried to drive at? Yeah, and he, I mean, he sees, he has a kind of whole account of the look, so how the look, which is like the gaze of the other, awakens our reflexive subjectivity. So it's only when the other is looking at us um, that we realize who we are. And so he has the example of the voyeur kneeling at the keyhole, spying on his lover. And he gives this example in Being in Nothing. It's very famous and often cited example where the voyeur is like spying on his lover and in that moment he's just at one with his actions just looking through the keyhole and then suddenly he hears footsteps behind him and suddenly he's a has a flush of shame and the reason is because now someone's watching him or someone sees him and sees what he's doing and sees what he's doing is wrong and then so the voyeur feels ashamed for for spying um on the lover or looking through the keyhole. And then the twist is, of course, he turns around and there's no one there and he was mistaken 
there were there was no actually there weren't any footsteps. He just accidentally or mistakenly heard them, and then then the structure of shame is such that well we need the other to activate shame, but the other doesn't have to actually be empirically present. They can just be imagined um, or anticipated. Um, they can be an absence that's present, and and so that that for Sartre gives the structure of the knowledge we have of ourselves, so the knowledge the voyeur has that he's doing something bad, that he's doing something morally reprehensible, only comes because he's seen by another. So the other, and he, he says, the other teaches me who I am. So we need the other to realize fully the structures of ourself. So that's his, his whole account of being in nothingness is this kind of subjectivity is like dependent on, on the look of the other. Um, so the, the, for Sartre then, what shame does is it's, it's kind of, it's almost, while difficult and burdensome, it is also something that is kind of therapeutic in a sense that it educates us about ourselves or it yeah. at least reveals something uh, true about what we are. Yeah, he he definitely characterizes it in that way, that it has this capacity to teach us who we are, um, to, you know, to, to show us something about ourselves that would otherwise not be available to us. We need the other to show us that. Um, mm-hmm. So then, and also, in addition to that, what you found, that's sort of Sartre, in that article, you also talk about Martin Nussbaum, and uh, she talks about uh, primitive shame. Mm. And uh, so primitive shame, and uh, see if, uh, tell me if I'm getting this right, mm-hmm. it's something that is, uh, it's, she doesn't mean primitive in the sense of regressive, I think, she means primitive in the sense of uh, youthful or uh, childlike. Yeah. You know, so shame begins in our sort of a sort of in our infantile stage where we have um, because we are young and that is a period where we are most, you know, when we're children, when we're babies. I know you and I have got kids the same age. They're utterly dependent on us. They're utterly helpless. But that's the origin of shame, I think, that primitive shame. Yeah, we have this sort of prolonged period of helplessness as children. Is that right? Yeah. So what she talks about. So some people say that shame um, involves Shame experiences as an adult, for example, involve a basic theory of mind. And that means that in order for me to be able to feel shame in front of you, for example, I must believe that you have a mind similar to mine. So I have to have this kind of idea of you as a kind of conscious, sentient being similar to me. But obviously neonates and like very small infants like babies don't have theory of mind. So the argument many people make is that they don't have the capacity to feel shame as a result because there's no way for them to kind of imagine how they appear in the through the eyes of another which yeah, is so for example they're they're comfortable with their own nudity for example yeah they have no idea that their own nudity is, is shameful because they haven't they don't have that capacity to internalize those norms and understand how they appear in in front of others and so on um and so so there are some accounts in developmental literature about sort of what Martha Nussbaum calls primitive shame, which is shame that can occur even though you don't have the capacity to put yourself in another's position to kind of look back at the self. So you don't have the capacity to have the other's point of view inside your own head. Um, and primitive shame is much more about um, feeling a, an emotional disconnection from your primary caregiver and how that makes you feel bad. So you, you feel shame, not because you feel like you've done something bad in their eyes, but rather because you feel like emotionally disconnected and that that makes you feel kind of abandoned and vulnerable and so on. So it's a kind of, it signals the kind of inherent vulnerability that infants have because they are entirely dependent on their caregivers. I mean, much more so than any other animal um, 
as far as I know. Nussbaum's scant does seem it does seem to be a bit Freudian around the edges. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't, I don't think Nussbaum isn't Freudian at all, really. She's Aristotelian, but uh, she's uh, she's definitely sort of saying is that our shame comes from the fact that our helplessness reminds us of that period where we are most uh, helpless. You know, when yeah. we are children, we're when we are ashamed or we feel ashamed, uh, we are reduced to our childlike state, and that's us at our most weak. Yeah, and I think it's like making this connection, which I think she does really powerfully, and that this kind of fear of um, social, or sorry, fear of physical survival that early infants have, because all of this is stemming from this kind of evolutionary kind of account of shame as being about surviving physical survival so we 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 want to maintain our bonds with our primary caregivers as infants because they're the ones who keep us alive right they feed us and cuddle us and and do all of that nourish us um and so if we feel those emotional bonds are are severed or compromised then we feel bad um, and we want to try and win them back and and that she argues transmutes into social fear of physical survival transmutes into fear of social survival and so then we engage in similar behavior as adults but trying to keep our place in the social hierarchy and within our social group and so on. And because it's linked to this, um, you know, developmentally, like goes all the way back to the very core of who we are from the moment we're born, it's super powerful. And she talks about, I mean, this is all in her book about how shame and disgust, um, the force of law. So talking about whether shame or disgust and disgust should be used in law. And, and she talks about how it, well, it's very questionable to use shaming tactics, um, or shame is punitive practice, so shaming tactics in order to punish um, criminals, um, and, and whether that's effective or not. And, you know, shame is very, very powerful emotion, very powerful experience because of this link it has to the core of who we are, um, if that makes some it sense. Does, it does make sense. Um, oh, God, there's, there's a lot there. Um, well, Okay. <laughs> There's a lot that I want to ask you about, but uh, well, the first, I guess the first thing is that what struck me about what you're saying is that, and what Nussbaum is saying as you're sort of uh, articulating it, is mm-hmm. that shame is really, having a healthy understanding of shame, I hope mm-hmm. I'm not sounding trite here, but uh, having a healthy understanding of shame is really important to our attachments. And yeah. if you... Does that make does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it, and it, because there are lots of different ways we can experience shame. Um, you know, shame is is it's argued that shame is necessary for child development. So it's not that we want to do away with shame because it's a negative experience. In fact, it's it can be a very healthy and um, healthy experience that helps us develop and grow and to you know help us. Um, maintain kind of pro-social behavior within our social group and so on. But there's a difference between um, what some theorists call disintegrative shame and reparative shame. So disintegrative shame is the experience of shame that can disintegrate part of yourself and can be negative or toxic, can harm you. Whereas reparative shame is is shaming that might help you um, come back into the social group. So you're shamed for something you did wrong, but then you're accepted after. And, and, and so that shame can help you kind of um, realize something about yourself, change that behavior, change that part of what you've done. And then you, your kind of bonds then become stronger. Um, and, and reparative shame is the sort of shaming that parents do to their children <laughs> to get them, you know, not to, <laughs> to pick not their to, noses their in public. Or something, yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Or the poo on the street or whatever, <laughs> whatever it is we're trying to stop them from doing. Um, you, you know, you have to kind of make sure they know it's wrong, but then at the same time, make sure that they know they're still loved and accepted and part of the family. Right. And, yeah. 
And that so can be, way, sorry, no, go on, Luna. No, no, just saying that in that way, shame can and is, um, has the potential to be positive. Um, go ahead. What were you going to ask? Uh, yeah, that that bit about shame being positive. I mean, that, that that's a fine line. I think that could be yeah. that could be profoundly pernicious as well. If it was like, I'm thinking of like you know, certain cultures that might engage in uh, shunning activities or hazing yeah. sessions and things like that. You know, where it's the re the reincorporation of the shame the shamed victim into the society can be well very damaging. Yeah. And it's something that's very delicate about shame and using shame, for example, in public health campaigns, which is something we're interested in the shame and medicine project. Um, or, you know, shame is used as a punitive practice. So shaming drunk drivers or shaming the shoplifters, um, you know, um, and because you don't know how shame is going to land, so to speak. So someone who um, comes from a marginalized um, or stigmatized identity, so an ethnic minority, for example, might might experience more shame than someone who comes from the dominant social group. And so shaming an individual who already experiences heightened levels of shame can be deeply pernicious and deeply damaging, um, whereas shaming someone who's got a very robust sense of self might make no difference at all. So, I mean, the, the kind of common trope about Donald Trump is that he's shameless. You can never shame Donald Trump because it's never going to stick to him, right? You can shame him all you want. But because he's got this kind of obliviousness about it, and he's he's he, he obviously completely embodies the most dominant social position. He's a white, very wealthy man. He's the president of the US. Um, the shaming has no effect, whereas someone who comes from a very disadvantaged position where and is very low down the social hierarchy, shame can be deeply, deeply damaging. And that's one of the arguments why it, it's never okay to shame people in, for, for instance, well, I would suggest in the context of medicine, shaming people for smoking or for obesity or for their lifestyle choices because you just don't know if that's going to actually motivate them to to change their decision or their lifestyle choices or if it's actually going to be more damaging and lead to things like depression or apathy or even suicide oh totally I, i'm an ex uh ex ex smoker you know so i can yeah. uh, i mean it's like the, the more i shame the more i enjoyed it like you know so, <laughs> yeah exactly so it's like some you know sort of some stu stupid like defiance like you know well i'll show yeah. them <laughs> <laughs> yeah. with my cancer but uh yeah <laughs> but uh yeah again I, I see i take your point i take your point that it's uh it's a way of it's a it's, it's kind of a cultural way of asserting who belongs and who doesn't belong which i think yeah. was your point in that yeah. argument that in some sense shame is very much connected to who belongs who's in who's out who yeah. is worthy of status who is worthy of sincere yeah, no, absolutely. And it's, I mean, it's a political emotion precisely for that reason, because it, it, it's connected to stigma and stigma is about in-groups and out-groups. So who, you know, people with stigma, stigmatized attributes are, are shunned and, um, you know, are out and, and the dominant social group decides what's, stig what's stigmatized and what's shameful and so on. So it, it, it's a, a very political um, emotion and is used politically. And, and so when you think about like liberation movements, um, like gay pride or black is beautiful. The whole, the whole, um, you know, there's obviously the, the legislative changes and the cultural and social shifts that mean that, you know, now we can have gay pride and we can celebrate that sort of identity. But also it's very interesting that we need gay pride as well as a kind of, um, cultural aspect of that movement, because it's about converting what was previously like shameful, um, I, social identity into something that can be out and celebrated and prideful and and you see that with things like the special olympics so you know bringing disability or 
that's the Paralympics, the Special Olympics, pe- people with intellectual disabilities, um, you know, instead of having them locked away in institutions, we celebrate their abilities and um, and that and that it's about making visible what's previously been shunned and hidden and concealed in our societies. And so, so it's very powerful. I mean, shame can be very, very powerful in that sense of, of mar- further marginalizing and disadvantaging individuals. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Um, I was, I'd hoped to sort of leave the politics towards the end, but I guess we could talk about it now with the, with some sense it's, it's, it's this question of honoring, isn't it? It's like, yeah. Who is worthy of honor in a society and mm-hmm. who is worthy of, I guess, at the extreme level being shunned or yeah. who is problematic within a within a society? Does the converse is something you've given thought to like? I mean, you mentioned Donald Trump, President Trump being someone who's shameless, uh, mm-hmm. which is a good TV series in Britain, by the way. But what is it? What is what is uh, how, how are there examples of other examples of someone who is shameless? I mean, is it what what type of person is that? Is that like? A psychopath yeah. or a sociopath, someone without the capacity to feel wrong, or to, you know. Yeah, I mean that's that's definitely something that um, is argued. Like, so people who just don't have the ability to internalize the another's view on the self on their themselves. So perhaps a, a psychopath or sociopath. It's interesting in the feminist literature about shame. There's usually a difference, uh, kind of positive, between the way men and women experience shame because women are historically a marginalized, disadvantaged group in comparison to men, and so the the prototypical like shameless individual, the person for whom shame rolls off their back like a duck, water off a duck's back, someone like Donald Trump, is the white, educated, you know, privileged um, middle class or upper class man. And, and so it's like, well, men don't feel shame because they have all the social power. And we know that's not true. In fact, there, I mean, there's evidence and, and suggestion that men actually feel um, more shame <laughs> than women, but it's so deeply, deeply, deeply repressed so socially and culturally that it's completely taboo to admit that you, you're a vulnerable, you know, individual who might feel shame and make mistakes. Um, and because it's weakness. A, yeah, it's weakness, yeah. There's a great book by um, an American philosopher called Bonnie Mann called Sovereign Masculinities, where she discusses at length male shame and what she calls the shame to power conversion. So what happens for men and she she links this in to like kind of the militarized identity particularly in the US that, that men have to take on and so when um, um this is obviously generalizing without universalizing when a man feels shame immediately that's converted into power so shame is bypassed repressed and ignored and it's converted into power and so instead of shame or any sort of um, expression of vulnerability it's turned into some form of power or aggression or dominance and and I mean arguably we could say that's what's going on with someone a figure like Donald Trump I mean the caricature we have through media obviously we don't know what he's really like Um, but but certainly that that that's a way to understand how shame might be bypassed for certain individuals and then we might think we might think of them as shameless but in fact what we might be confronted with is someone who feels shame so deeply that it's so deeply uncomfortable and threatening that they can never go there so instead they express the opposite which is to feel or to to be shameless or to be dominant aggressive to be a narcissist um and could it be sorry again luna could it be something um positive like uh you know, you mentioned sort of sort of the gay liberation movement and stuff like that, yeah. trying to re- re- retrieve or reclaim uh, pejorative terms. Uh, 
but is like could shameless like be, being shameless like being a source of resistance like you know i mean i think take for example like the civil rights activists in the united states in the 50s and 60s who who shamelessly went into you know restaurants and sat there against sort of existing yeah. social mores uh, for very very good reason oh yeah absolutely and that's a really that's a really good example where you're trying to break down the 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 social kind of norms and values that are actually causing your oppression and i think that 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 is a way that being shameless can be used as a sort of site of resistance um, and political resistance. Yeah, that's a good example. Thinking about the politics of shame, and I was trying to think of this before um, before before we started our conversation, um, and I think one of the, I guess, most practical examples of it, for better or worse, is uh, in the Brexit debate. Now, I'm, mm. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar of the, uh, the, J- the James O'Brien, the... Uh, uh, he's a broadcaster with LBC, and he's kind of he famously goes viral all these times because, um, well, what he does is he shames a lot of Brexiters into looking <laughs> stupid, you know. Now, uh, I mean, I say this without rancor towards uh, James O'Brien, but uh, that is actually is what he's doing. So, I guess my question is: is is there times when it is appropriate to shame somebody, you know, oh. or? You know, because when I listen to some of those callers that call him, because he's you know he's very, I'm sure you've heard these, you've heard snatches yeah. of this, yeah. I mean, he's very articulate, he's very intelligent, he's a really good debater, and he's well informed. He does his research, he does his homework. Yeah. And I just feel sorry for the the callers. Yeah. You know? You know? but is 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 he right to uh, putting James O'Brien aside? That's just an example. C- can you imagine situations where it is good to shame people? Are so are people worthy of uh, shame, being shamed? Yeah. I don't know. It's very tricky. I I have I tend towards enormous caution with shame, and I think it's perhaps right to say that we shouldn't shame people, no matter what terrible things they have done, because often that makes it worse. So it might be that um, that shame leads to a series of defensive um, reactions, whether it could be like apathy, aggression, you know, suicide, or further entrenching the bad behaviour that you know, that they're being shamed for in the first place. Um, And there's arguments that shaming individuals, because we don't know how shame is going to land, and often shame makes things worse. So maybe making them feel guilty or maybe making them feel remorse rather than feeling shame or, you know, using other tactics might be more effective if what we're hoping for is some sort of change. Um, But there is arguments that it's okay to shame um, say corporations. So um, there's a book called "Is Shame Necessary" by Jennifer Jacket, where she talks about how shaming corporations can actually be effective, or shaming governments can be very effective. So shaming, um, you know, the South African government for apartheid, or shaming uh, tuna fishing companies for killing dolphins. Actually, that made a massive difference. Um, all of these kind of public shaming campaigns that weren't targeted at individuals, but targeted at kind of corporate entities or nation states. Um, and that those, those practices might be effective because they can lead to change without damaging particular individuals. Um, but then when it comes to shaming individuals, the, yeah, I mean, some might say, well, you know, terrible people deserve to feel terrible, therefore you should shame them. But if if you, what you're hoping for is some sort of positive change, I don't know if it's the best tactic. Yeah, so I was about to say, like, you know, when I was a kid, you know, one of the constant sort of things our teachers used to say, so you should be ashamed of yourself, you know? So there yeah. are the persons who should be worthy of shame, yeah. 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 Now, I, I want to, uh, we don't have long left, so one thing I want to talk about, we have 
we haven't actually got to talk a little bit about you sort of the concrete examples that you're studying and and yeah. uh, that's the question of shame in relation to medical practice and I guess the experience of patients and the experience of medical practitioners mm-hmm. right now uh, as a way into that uh, I think um, in in your article your very interesting article the phenomenology of shame in the clinical encounter mm-hmm. I'll put a link up to that uh, uh, you 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 talk really interestingly about the uh, Channel Four show, Embarrassing Bodies. Yeah. So uh, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, and for, firstly, could you please explain to people who don't know what Embarrassing Bodies was, the Channel Four program, yeah. and uh, then also explain what I liked about your article was you, you you thought that there was something quite productive and positive in Embarrassing Bodies about how it helped us to understand shame. Yeah, it's, I mean it's a fascinating um, reality television show where. Um, people who are, have a, an illness or condition that they're too embarrassed to go to their GP about, um, instead go on to this TV show called Embarrassing Bodies, which is a show where there are um, doctors on the show, real GPs, and you basically your consultation with the GP is televised. And, and most people who go on have something you know, that they consider embarrassing or shameful, that they were too embarrassed to just go and visit their normal GP about. And um, and so often it's things like to do with the genitals or to do with excretory functions or to do with skin, your skin, skin conditions. So you can kind of imagine the sorts of things, conditions and illnesses that people have. And then it's all very graphic. So you see everything, right? So um, everything comes out and everything's talked about really openly and explicitly. The doctors are always really kind of comforting and reassuring. And Channel 4, I mean, this was the most popular show on Channel 4, and it, and it led um, to a load of spin-offs. So there's embarrassing fat bodies, embarrassing teenage bodies, shows across, like in Canada and, and Australia and so on. And um, and basically what Channel 4 um, sort of posited, and, I, and, and the, there is some evidence for this, is that th- these shows actually made a difference because people who were watching the show, obviously there was an element of voyeurism and kind of schadenfreude where you kind of look at people on the show and go, ha, 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 those fools going on the show, at least I'm not as bad as them. However, people would also watch the show and, and identify with people because they might have had a similar condition or similar illness and suddenly the kind of secrecy and shame and stigma around that illness or condition was sort of lifted because it's all on television and it's all open and it's all accepted. And there is something very cathartic about a public um, kind of display of shame, I suppose. And and, and that's certainly part of shame's dynamic. The way to, to diffuse shame is to talk about it um, and to reveal it. Um, and then suddenly it's not so shameful or, or, um, anymore. And so that the show kind of works on that kind of cathartic element where people go on the show, something that was previously so shameful they could never even mention it, is suddenly on television and, and that kind of diffuses and destroys the shame. Um, and so Channel 4 um, made a series of claims about the show saying that, you know, it, it saved the NHS several hundred thousand pounds a year because people were going to their GPs quicker when they saw conditions on the So preventative show. medicine. Yeah, it was a sort of form of preventative medicine. Um, and it acknowledged quite centrally that 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 shame in a clinical encounter, so the, the shame a patient feels because of illness, um, because they might perceive that it's their own fault or it might be related to some lifestyle thing. Or, you know, even if you have an illness that's got nothing to do with, you know, your behavior, there's no way it can be perceived as your own fault. It's hard not to feel like there's some there's something blameworthy about it. 
And that can really act as a barrier to the way you engage with your doctor. So it might be that you don't go to the doctor at all because you're, you're too ashamed. Um, or it might be that you conceal your illness from your friends or that you don't take up the treatment that's, um, the, that's prescribed to you um, and, and so on. Or you might go to the doctor and just lie, not tell them the truth. And that's very common. So non-disclosure is really common um, and a big problem for GPs, you know, um, that the patients aren't truthful um and yeah so so embarrassing bodies um had has this kind of i mean it's not it's not unproblematic this show um because it presents a sort of idealized type of doctor and type of clinical encounter in that every time someone comes there's a neat and tidy resolution and everyone leaves happy and often <laughs> when you go to the gp that is not what happens you know no <laughs> yeah. but it does it does it does it does kind of speaks Luna to something essential about the medical encounter you know when you go to your GP or you'd speak to a nurse or another medical practitioner or a specialist or whatever that in some sense there there is a hierarchy there because they Mm. are the specialist and you are not a specialist so in a sense it's connected to judgment or being judged yeah Yeah, I mean and that's 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 unavoidable isn't it in a medical encounter because in some sense that's what you're going for you're going to be judged by someone which yeah, I don't know experience and uh, training and expertise and all of these things, which can help identify uh, identify whatever illness you have. Yeah, absolutely, and that's why the potential for shame is arguably more in clinical contexts because of these discrepancies in power relations. So, um, so you know, for patients, doctors obviously have more power. Um, in medical training, obviously, the training clinicians have much more power than the medical students. And so there are always these discrepancies in, um, this, you know, where people are on the hierarchy. And, and that when people are in different places on the, the social hierarchy, then the potential for shame and shaming and the power of shame becomes much more. Um, and, and that's certainly the case. And also, because every time you go to the doctor, there's some sort of exposure. It might be like actual exposure of your physical body. You might have to like take your clothes off. But there's some exposure of yourself. So you have to start talking about your personal habits or your life or your behavior or what you eat or, you know, who you're having sex with. You know, you have to expose something. And that exposure is the vulnerability, right? And that also brings in the potential for shame. So it's like the necessary death of privacy. Yeah, absolutely. And often you see a doctor you've never seen before, you may never see again. So there's this kind of sense of exposure to a complete stranger. And if that person doesn't, if the the doctor you're seeing or the nurse or whatever medical professional you're seeing doesn't have a lovely manner and doesn't know how to handle the situation, doesn't respect how you might be feeling uncomfortable, then it can all be very uncomfortable, you know, can can all go wrong. Um, And so that's one of the things we're interested in investigating is how it is that we could make healthcare encounters more shame sensitive so that that individuals are attuned to the possibility of shame arising it's no longer the elephant in the room we're just ignoring it we know we all know it's there but we're ignoring it and pretending it's not there but actually acknowledging that oh you might be feeling uncomfortable and you know maybe the doctor's having a bad day or something he's he's blunt and terse yeah something like that yeah so what would you recommend then for people who are going to the doctors or overcoming (laughs) shame or you know Oh, what Ooh, you, I don't oh, <laughs> recommend anything. Not yet. Yeah. We haven't done all the research yet. But I do think, I mean, I just think it's, I think one way to also diffuse shame is obviously to talk about it, but also to recognize that everyone experiences shame and that we are all vulnerable beings. Um, and that vulnerability is something we shouldn't be ashamed of, but, but it is in fact a core part of, of 
being human and who we are and um and it's inescapable so it's it's you know the capac it's the capacity for shame is not a bad thing um it, it can connect us as well as making us feel isolated and separate I think that's a really good place to end, Luna. <laughs> thanks, Patrick. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for being with us. No problem. My pleasure. <laughs>